Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Caitlin Gehring with Harper Audio. Today we're taking a little break from our author interviews. Instead, we're talking to the talented award-winning narrator, Katherine Kelgren. Katherine has recorded over 200 audiobooks, including Queen of the Tearling and the Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place series. Most recently, Katie just finished up recording A Very Nearly Honorable League of Pirates Number no. 2, The Terror of the Southlands by Carolyn Carlson. So can you tell us a bit about that series as well as that particular book? Well, it's a particular favorite of mine, that series. Um, It's a swashbuckling tale about a young girl who wants to be a pirate. And in the first book, she is denied access to the very nearly honorable League of Pirates because she's a girl. And that's not done, apparently, if you're um, to to be a girl and be a pirate simultaneously. So she decides to... um, break out on her own and become a sort of a freelance pirate. So she takes her, uh, her friend, who's a gargoyle, who she chips down off the wall of her bedroom and goes off to sea. Um, but her governess uh, considers that it would be most improper for her to be alone on a pirate ship. So she ends up on the pirate ship with her after a series of different um, adventures and um, sort of keeping decorum on the pirate ship. And needless to say, it's all the characters are so delicious and so much fun. And the voices are so much fun to do that it's just been a total joy recording the books. Um, the second one involves her solving a mystery and uh, defeating a dastardly group of villains called the Mutineers and rescuing Miss Eugenia Pym, who is the head of a, a, a school, a finishing school for delicate ladies. Yes. So they're very exciting books and um, they're just exactly the kind of books um, that give me joy as, a, as the ham that I am because uh, they're full of wonderfully drawn, big, um, gorgeously written characters. You have all these different voices. I think you had me laughing both times I got to sit in on the recordings. I mean, what's not to love about a very irritated and slightly indignant gargoyle? Um, Where do these voices come from? Well, I don't know. I mean, the gargoyle is one of my favorite characters in the book. I just love him. Um, He's so well written. I just figured that he would be, he's a servant in, in the house. He's been, he's been put there by the Enchantress to protect the inhabitants of Westfield House, where he lives. So I figured he'd be kind of, you know, a working class, maybe. He's seen it all, has been hanging on a wall for several hundred years. And he'd have a very gravelly kind of voice, because he's made of stone. So, so I guess he ended up, you know, kind of like that, you know. But he's also a very delicate creature, you know, and he gets very scared. He doesn't like birds. And uh, he's like, it's not a bird, is it? You know, he gets very frightened and he loves reading romances and things like that. So he has a very sort of delicate side to his character, as well as being a very fearsome looking gargoyle. And in the second book, um, we have the delight of him beginning to write his memoirs. Um, as as told to um, the main character of the book, and it's it's called something like the Gargoyle History of a Hero. He slightly changes the narrative of the book to make himself the hero, but you know how can you disagree with him? He is a very fearsome creature, really. Is that kind of how you approach all your characters, just kind of like breaking them down into where they are in the book, and like drawing on their accents? 
It depends. I mean, some of it has to do, if I can speak to an author beforehand, I always do that. And, and you know, if the author has any ideas about about the characters or how they would sound, there are a lot of different ways into finding a voice, um, their social class in life, uh, their age. Um, and uh, sometimes certain actors just pop into my mind, too. Um, and uh, I, I'm afraid I do something terrible, which is I imitate um, an actress who I absolutely idolize uh, called Dame Edith Evans. I think she passed away in the 1970s, but she's very famous for playing Lady Bracknell in The Importance of Being Earnest. And in the scene where the young man who wants to marry her daughter asks, you know, she asks him, you know, who are his parents? And he says he doesn't know who his parents are. He was found in a handbag. And she says, a handbag. And she was so famous for saying, a handbag, that to this day, um, actresses in England, at least, cannot play the part of Lady Bracknell without being compared with her in how they say, a handbag. And when you consider that's three syllables and how many decades ago that was, people still can't get over it. So her voice appears... In, in lots of books. In fact, she's a sort of, in the very nearly honorable League of Pirates, the head of the um, girls' finishing school, Miss Eugenia Pym, Miss Eugenia Pym, who's quite sort of formidable, is a little bit based on her, has a little bit of an edge of Edith Evans, but I put her into books whenever I can. She's, she's even a man in one book. I mean, I will put her in, you know, anytime there's a dowager with a, with a monocle, it's Edith Evans, you know, if it's at all possible. I just love imitating her voice. And I once went to see one of my great idols, one of my great heroes, Jim Dale, reading. And he talked about the fact that he imitates Dame Edith Evans all the time. So, so she's very popular, I guess, among narrators. Yeah. I think you, I think you uh, also do her a little bit in Incorrigible Children's, right? Uh, she ended up being the mother of um, uh, oh the the mother of Lord of Lord Ashton, yes. But but that one she had a sort of a lugubrious voice, as I remember. She was kicked out of the convent of the Sisters of Perpetual Sobbing for being overly morose. And I remember she had a voice that was kind of always lachrymose like that. You know, somewhat teary. But she also sounded like she could really just kind of rip your head off in a second if she wanted to. Very formidable, you know. She had a kind of power to her voice. But at the same time, like she was going to burst into tears at any moment. Can you just walk us through how you prepped for the Terror of the Southlands? Um, well, what I'll do is when I finished any particular book, what I did when I finished the, uh, the first book is I'll have the kindly engineer um, make me a, a sort of a sample of each one of the different character voices and I'll keep them in playlists on my iPad or my iPhone so that I have them when I'm in the studio and I can refer back and I know exactly what each character sounded like that recurs in the, in the other books. Um, then I very carefully read through the book and I'm writing in the margins any time the author describes how someone says something, like she said morosely, she said sulkily, I'll make sure to write sulkily in the margin. Um, I have a sort of bizarre system of kind of underlines and dashes and things like that, which indicate when long lists of things are coming or when somebody's interrupted when they're speaking. 
Um, and then after I've done all that, I will go back through after the first reading and highlight every single character in a different color of highlighter pen. So that if I have a scene where there are multiple characters speaking at the same time, I can attack their voices with confidence, knowing that, um, n knowing that I've marked them beforehand, basically. Yes. And then I guess you just kind of developed the system over the years, because um, you've been doing audiobooks since 2000, right? Um, well, about 2004, oh. so about 10 years now, I guess, 2004, 2005. Um, that I really started doing them more full-time. I think I did one, and then there was a couple of years, and then, then I started doing them more often. And yes, it's gotten more elaborate and, and you know, <laughs> more complicated and strange as the years have gone on. Until now, it's, it's, it's really quite Baroque. But um, it, it's helpful to me anyway. Any little thing that I can do at home that will save me some time when I'm in the studio is something that I really appreciate being able to, uh, to do. And, um, you know, so many of the series that I've been doing with Harper, like The Incorrigible Children and The Very Nearly Honorable League of Pirates, um, and also The Queen of the Tearling, but it's a very different sort of book because it's, uh, it's for adults and it's a, it's a much more serious subject matter. They all have these beautifully, vividly drawn characters, and that's what I just absolutely love to, uh, to, to record, sink my teeth into. Well, you say you have a different highlighter for every character. What's the most highlighters you've ever needed? Oh, some some books have well over a hundred characters, and um, I don't. You, I mean, I literally I have highlighters. I have a whole like uh, sort of you know packet of fifty Crayola washable markers that smell like you know cherry and root beer and everything They're for kids. And I've got colored pencils and you know different width pens. I mean, I've got a, a whole drawer full of stuff at home. And it, I just basically, as me, you know, I just have to find as many colors as there are characters. And sometimes it can run well over a hundred, hundred and fifty, or something like that. Yeah. This isn't just the extent of your prep work. I read in past interviews like you have tracked down uh, native Lithuanian speakers to get um, get their take on how to pronounce words. Uh, there was a time I think I saw where not only were you practicing with a dialect coach, but you also approached a singing coach about how to sound like a drunken Scotsman <laughs> while singing. What is the strangest work or the hardest work that you ever had to prep for and what was involved? Well, I don't know. I mean, different books present different challenges. I mean, the one you're talking about, Singing Like a Drunken Scotsman, that had a lot of, um, that was one of the books in the Bloody Jack series um, with, about the little girl who goes, she dresses as a boy and goes off to join the Royal Navy and fight pirates. And um, in those books, there'll be at least usually 14 or 15 songs. And there'll be sort of traditional songs, luckily out of copyright, you know, traditional sea shanties and folk songs and things. And I will track down the original tunes for them. And then for that book, because so many of the songs were sung by this, this, uh, this inebriated Scotsman, I went to a wonderful singing coach um, and uh, who's actually gone on to be... Um, uh, to write this musical, A Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, which has just won Best Musical, Tony. Very talented, but he used to be a singing coach. And back then, I went to him, and he was wonderful, and I said, please, can you play this in the lowest key possible that I can sing, and just play the first 
few bars of this um, so that, uh, you know, so that I can, I know where I can start, how low I can go when I'm in the studio. And I asked this of this guy who's called Stephen Lutvak, a really lovely guy. And he turned to me and said, this is the strangest thing anybody has ever asked me to do as a singing coach. Um, and yes, I mean, the, um, there's also a, another series, uh, there's a book called The Boy in the Suitcase, and there were dozens and dozens of Lithuanian words and uh, Danish words. And I did, through the consulate, track down a Lithuanian speaker and had her record every single one of these words. And I made a separate little file in my iP on my iPad, like a little playlist, so that when I got to the words in the studio, I could play them and hear the correct pronunciations. But it takes days. I mean, all that sort of prep work does take a long time, but some of it can be fun. And... I do see a dialect coach, a wonderful one called Stephen Gabus, and um, he's such a joy. Any excuse to get him in, you know, I was just prepping a book today and I saw an Australian character coming in and I thought, ooh, yay, maybe I can get my, vo my vocal coach in. I haven't seen him in a while. I miss him. Um, I just consider part of that part of my continuing education. I did go to drama school in London. I mean, I lived in London for a good part of my life, and part of that was three years at London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art, and we did three years of intensive dialect training there, but those were mostly dialects of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and so forth, and so things further afield, like um, Australian, Jamaican, um, Hungarian, that's when I get my dialect coach in more often. And I, I mean, I think I also heard a story about an ostrich at some point. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, there was a, that Not was the... Not only are there human dialects, there are bird dialects. It was an enraged <laughs> ostrich. It was a very disgruntled ostrich. And um, it was a sort of a, a kind of a battle cry, as I remember, of an ostrich that had been written out in The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place. And, um, oh, now how did it go? Oh, it was something like... Um, anyway, I watched multiple YouTube videos of, and I just sort of, you know, Googling angry ostrich call and, you know, watching all these videos of, of, of quite furious ostriches. And finally, I found an excellent one of a very angry ostrich doing this call over and over again. And so I was watching it and watching it, and I kept doing it and doing it and doing it, and um, I went to take the recycling out. I was doing it just multiple times because I wanted to get it right, and I was walking through the hall, you know, like opened the door into the hall, and I was going, and boom, there was like one of my neighbors, like right in front of me, like two feet in front of me, and I guess he had been taking his recycling out, and he just stared at me. I'm like, I didn't even know, I was so mortified, I didn't even know what to say, I was like, Hello. <laughs> sort of, it's New York. Yeah. He moved out shortly after. And I, I really hope that had nothing to do with it. I just hope that was a coincidence. Lots of animal um, sounds come to play in different books, I really find. Um, and I spend a lot of time on YouTube watching videos of different animals and trying to understand their kind of, their rhythms and their behavior and... Um, Oh, uh, you know, recently I did a, a collection of Beatrix Potter stories, and she'll, she will have written into her tales um, dialogue, which I really think is just meant to represent an animal sound. Um, and uh, at one point during one of the stories, which was the pie and the patty pan, there's a magpie doctor 
and um, the uh, the magpie doctor, all he says is spinach, question mark, ha ha, gammon, question mark, ha ha. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound very convincing. So I, you know, how am I going to make that work? So I went on listening to magpie calls on YouTube, and uh, I found that there was one that was like, <laughs> so it was spinach, ha ha, gammon, ha ha. Anyway, hopefully it was better than that in the actual recording. But I found that, you know, surprisingly enough, and in the Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place with the squirrel and various other little little furred and friendly creatures, I spend a lot of time one way and another looking at videos of, of animals and birds. Yeah. So when you're not busy narrating, do you listen for fun or do you largely listen for work? I am. I, I'm constantly listening to audiobooks. I love listening to audiobooks. I've got a few things on the go right now. Um, I'm listening to a book by Jane Gardam, narrated by Graham Malcolm, called Old Filth. Um, uh, filth standing for Failed in London, Try Hong Kong, um, which is a kind of a wonderful story. I'm, I'm also listening to Alan Bennett, um, who is a wonderful... British writer that I got to be very fond of when I was living in London. I'm listening to a book of stories, him reading them himself, and he's a wonderful. Um, he well, he's an actor himself, um, as well as a writer. So um, it's wonderful to listen to him reading. And then there's certain perennial ones that I'll listen to over and over again in a compulsive, frightening manner. Like um, there's a recording of Treasure Island with Alfred Molina doing it. I'll listen to that at least once a year, um, sometimes more. Uh, I very much love Roald Dahl. Um, there's an audio collection of him reading uh, his own stories, and uh, there's a recording of him doing Fantastic Mr. Fox that I must play on a loop occasionally when I'm in the mood over and over again. And I recently discovered, I don't know how I'd missed it for so many years, E.B. White's recording of Charlotte's Web. Um, which I just heard this year and I've listened to now, I think, twice. Um, and uh, it's just heartbreakingly beautiful. Um, and another author that, that uh, you publish, which is um, Neil Gaiman. I'm a big, big audio. F I love listening to him reading his own books. I think he's an absolutely stunning, smashing narrator. And uh, I listen over and over again to his books. What was one book that really sparked the narrator in you? Hmm... I mean, I think each project, I mean, I'm, I'm being honest when I say each project kind of sparks the narrator in me in the sense that each one is a different challenge. And obviously some books are like better than other books, but um, each one of them presents a whole different set of, th of obstacles to overcome and challenges. And uh, it's, it's constantly a learning experience, basically, being a narrator. You, you learn new things, new strange animal noises, <laughs> the pronunciations of different new words, um, you know, every day that you're working in this job, which is why I recommend it to all actors out there. It's a wonderful job being an audio narrator. Um, and then last question, and mm -hmm. it's a pretty weird one, I freely admit. Um, mm -hmm. What is one question that you've never been asked in an interview that you always wished you were asked? Hmm... That's, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think something that would address this idea of the community of narrators out there who make this, who make narration their life's work or a serious part of their life's work. I think there's a kind of a perception 
that narration is something that actors do when they can't find other work. That it's a great thing to do to sort of temp, you know, if you can't get proper acting work on stage or in film. And I hate that, you know, because I consider um, narration to be every bit as important as any other kind of acting work and require every bit as much skill as any other kind of acting work. And I know that I am part of a large community of other narrators who feel the same way. So I guess a question um, about, about that, you know, how, how would you consider, what do you consider is the importance of audio narration as a profession? And that's why, although I'm an actress, I trained as an actress, and I did do some, I did stage work and a little bits of film and TV and things like that. But once I started doing audio narration, I kind of found my happy place, and I remembered the joy that I had when I was a teenager listening to audiobooks and how important they were to me. And so I consider it, you know, my life's work and my career, and I'm very serious about it. And I know a lot of other people who feel the same way. So I guess that's the thing that I would, that I would have addressed. All right. I mean, I, I don't think there's mm -hmm. any way to deny how serious narrators are. I mean, just listening yeah. to earlier in the interview, how much prep work you guys do. I think I heard it once described as like, you're essentially a one man, one man or one woman playing all the parts in a play. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, and you would understand it as you, because you produce audiobooks, <laughs> but I think it's more in the sort of, in the, the general public. And there are some, um, you know, reporters and writers for newspapers who absolutely get it and are big fans of audiobooks and write about them seriously and beautifully. And some who just sort of think that they are a kind of, um, that anyone can do them. You just walk into the studio and open the book and start reading. And that there's nothing involved in making an audiobook. And um, there's just so much involved and so many people who take them so seriously, who take doing them very seriously, basically, and make them a big part of their life as an actor. Well, thank you very much. Is there anything else you would like to add? Nothing. Just uh, thank you so much for having me, Caitlin. It's been very much fun, and uh, I hope that the terror of the Southlands will please, and uh, I'm enormously looking forward to the next installment of The Incorrigible Children. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents podcast from HarperCollins Publishers, available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Today we spoke with Catherine Kelgren, narrator of A Very Nearly Honorable League of Pirates, number two, The Terror of the Southlands, by Carolyn Carlson. We hope you will join us again. Thank you for listening. <laughs>